All right, David, thank you so much for leading us in that time of praise and singing. And now, my dear brothers and sisters, it is time for our study of the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn it this time to the book of Exodus, chapter 21. And today we'll be looking at verses 28 through 32. So Exodus chapter one, 21, verses 28 through 32. And real quick, as you're turning there, let me just remind everyone of the worth and value of studying the Old Testament. I'm aware that many people today do not like the Old Testament. They don't read the Old Testament. And even for those that don't necessarily have any negative feelings towards the Old Testament, maybe they even love some of the stories, but perhaps when they go through the legal material, such as we are going through today, and they're reading the rules and uh, the legal matters, and they find that to be uh, uninteresting or problematic or whatever it might be, let me just give you two verses from the New Testament that I, I hope will encourage and reinvigorate your passion for your study of the Old Testament, including the legal material this morning. And that verse, if you already don't have it memorized, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it and maybe write the reference down. The Apostle Paul there writing to the young pastor Timothy says this, all scripture, all, is given by divine inspiration. It's breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly complete, equipped for every good work. And so when Paul says all scripture, he's referring to the whole of the Bible, including the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, at the time Paul is saying this, he's referring to the Old Testament because when Paul's writing, the New Testament has yet to be written. He's literally writing the New Testament at that very moment. So he actually even has in mind specifically the Old Testament, and that would include the legal material in front of us this morning. So I just say that I want to encourage you if this part of the Bible is difficult for you, you don't find it particularly interesting or it's just problematic in a number of ways, I just want to encourage you with that simple truth. God breathed this out and still for believers today, though we're not under the Old Covenant, we are not Old Testament Israel, and yet there's something God wants to say that can be used in our lives today for doctrine, correction, reproof, instruction, so that you will be equipped to do what God wants you to do this week and the rest of your life. So just a little word of encouragement there. So with that said, we're going to read Exodus 21, verses 28 through 32. Again, this is going through the legal material. We'll read this, we'll pray, and we'll get into our study this morning. Exodus 21, 28 through 32. This is the word of God. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But... If the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. Whether it is gored a son or gored a daughter, according to the judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and we thank you and praise you that you are not a God who has remained silent, but you are a God who has spoken. You are a God who has not only created human beings, but you desire to work in and through them to accomplish your good will and pleasure. And so, Lord, it is my prayer for us through this study of your word that you would transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, if we have any wrong ideas about you and about life, Father, I pray you would correct us in those wrong ideas, that bad thinking. 
Lord, if we have any desires that are wrong, or perhaps we lack desires we ought to have, Lord, we pray you would correct and form and conform our will and our affections to the image of Christ. We ask now for a blessing over this time of teaching and that the Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, would be our teacher this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by asking two great, important questions. The first question is, how much is a human life worth? How much is a human life worth? And a second related and perhaps even a more important question, and how do you arrive at your answer to the first question? How much is a human worth life? Human life worth. And how do you arrive at that answer? Those are questions that human beings have wrestled with over millennia. And though there are many instances that I could cite of human beings wrestling with that question and proposing various answers, perhaps one of the most recent and most appalling answers that I could think of came just back in the 1970s by the Ford Motor Company. For those of you that might be too young to remember, there was a case involving the Ford Motor Company and their new car, the Ford Pinto. And when information about this case emerged, it created shockwaves throughout American culture. People simply couldn't believe at how they answered those two questions I just posed to you. So again, as a brief reminder for those of you that have heard about this and to uh, inform you uh, to those who have never heard of this case, let me just summarize it for you. In the early 1970s, when competition from Japan's automakers was heating up, and the demands for energy conservation were just around the corner. Ford Motor Company, with Lee Iacocca as its president, introduced a new line of cars, the Ford Pinto. The Pinto was to cost less than $2,000 and weigh less than 2,000 pounds. During crash tests, which preceded the introduction of the Pinto to the public, it became apparent that the vehicle had a dangerous design flaw. The gas tank was so designed and located that when it was involved in a rear-end collision at an impact speed of 20 miles an hour or higher, the tank was apt to rupture, causing a fire or explosion. The tank was only five inches forward of the rear sheet metal of the body and only three inches back of the rear axle housing. In not just one, but most of the rear-end crash tests, the axle housing deformed the tank and sharp protruding bolts punctured the tank. In only 20-mile-an-hour moving barrier crashes, the rear-end crush distance was large, more than 8 inches. Ford's conclusion following the crash test was that the rear-end structure of the car was not satisfactory because of several types of damage deformation of the gas tank, leakage, and damage to the filler pipe. Suggested changes to repair the defects were not expensive, something in the range of $11 per car. And a confidential company policy memo issued in late 1971 directed that no additional safety features be adopted for the 1973 and later cars, listen to this, until required by law. A cost-benefit analysis prepared by Ford concluded that it was simply not cost-efficient to add an $11 per car cost in order to correct the flaws. So while $11 per car doesn't sound like a lot, keep in mind that would be 11 million cars and 1.5 million trucks times 11. Benefits derived from spending this amount of money were estimated to be $49.5 million. 
This estimate assumed that each death, by the way, that means this is what it would cost them if they don't fix the car and allow people to get hurt or die. This estimate assumed that each death, again, what is a human life worth? How do you arrive at your answer? This estimate assumed that each death, which could be avoided, would be worth $200,000, that each major burn injury that could be avoided would be worth $67,000, and that an average repair cost of $700 per car involved in a rear-end accident would be avoided. It further assumed that there would be 2,100 burned vehicles, 180 serious burn injuries, and 180 burn deaths in making this calculation. When the unit cost was spread out over the number of cars and light trucks which would be affected by the design change at a cost of $11 per vehicle, the cost was calculated to be $137 million. $137 million to repair the car and save human life. $49.5 million to allow people to be burned and even burned to death. Famously, Ford made a calculation of how much human life was worth. We see they arrived at their answer through a simple cost-benefit analysis in which money and profit were worth more than human lives. Of course, in later lawsuits, all of this, including the confidential company memo, would come out, and the American public was shocked. Uh, one engineer was actually asked, well, when you discovered that this dangerous design flaw, did you bring it to the president, to Lee Iacocca? And the engineer said, oh, no, we all knew not to do that. And the engineer was asked, what do you mean you knew not to do it? Oh, everyone knew that Lee Iacocca had a very famous saying that we all knew very well, and it summed up the culture there. Listen to this, friends. Safety doesn't sell. Safety doesn't sell. Now, why? when we hear that and we are appalled, we are shocked that people could deliberately just assign dollar amounts to human lives and human suffering, and then on a basis of how much money they could make or lose, they made a decision to go ahead and jeopardize the lives and health of so many people. And yet, friends, I want you to pause for a moment. And before saying, before thinking to yourself, oh, that's just some rare, exception, outrageous thing that only happens once every few hundred years, I would like to show you this morning that that is exactly the opposite. That rather than the exception, this kind of thinking that was proposed and practiced by the Ford Motor Company has not been the exception throughout human history, but it has been the rule. And the way in which I want to show you this is no new thing, and it's always a danger, it's a danger today, that we could so devalue human lives that companies, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft or, or anything else, or governments, that people are always in danger of lowering the value of human worth is always there. Let me show you how it stretches back into the distant and even ancient past. So as we look at this text of Exodus 21, 28 through 32, we can certainly arrive at the meaning of the passage without consulting any extra biblical sources. But one thing I think we can miss that we do seek to lose from, we won't lose the meaning of the Bible without appealing to the other things. That I would affirm that. We can have the meaning of the text without looking at the ancient Near East. But what we do get, an added benefit we get, is we can see the significance. We can see the significance of what God was doing in that time and that place. In other words, how were God's people called to be different, not just by our standards in the 21st century, but by their standards in their world? How were God's people to be different? And so what I want to do this morning is in just a moment, I'm actually going to show you on a slide three laws from the very famous Code of Hammurabi. And in this, these three laws from the Code of Hammurabi, they all relate to the exact same situation put in front of us by the biblical text this morning. And I want to highlight 
both the similarities, there's some similarities, the basic sets of circumstances, but you're going to see that God and the values of God's people are and must be different from the pagan peoples around. So let me go ahead and show you these three laws from the Code of Hammurabi. So we have laws 250 through 252, and we'll take them one at a time and we'll pause and compare them to the biblical text. So look at law number 250. It says, when an ox gores a man to death, when it walks in the street, there is no reason for a process. So I want you to notice that. Now look at verse 28. Same situation, different law. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. What's the difference? What's the significance? What is God doing in ancient Israel at this time? Well, first of all, in the Code of Hammurabi, what we saw is if an ox is walking down the street with its owner and it gores somebody, nothing happens. Nothing. The idea is, well, stuff happens. People die. Oh, well. So there's already just no penalty whatsoever. But in ancient Israel, that's not the case. Even if the owner did not know that the ox tended to do that, in other words, there's not even an intentional or unintentional crime being committed, nevertheless, the ox shall die. Now, that there's two things behind this. Number one, this is following up on the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. Famously, in Genesis 9, we all know the capital punishment verse. We've talked about it recently. If man sheds man's blood, murder, by man his blood shall be shed. The death penalty is instituted for anyone who commits murder. But what many people miss is the same thing in that text applies to animals. If an animal takes the life of a human being, the animal shall die for the same reason. So in other words, the value of human beings is so much greater in God's economy than it is in the pagan world that even if an animal does it, the animal is to be put to death. Now, that's sort of the, the moral reasoning, okay? The theological moral reasoning. But there's a practical reasoning involved. If the ox has to die, then there is an economic penalty built in. In other words, what difference would that make in society? If you grant that many people do not value other human beings as high as they ought, well then, do you just let that go? Or do you want to impose laws that, that help limit that or at least uh, try to restrain some of the evil? And so the very fact that even if an owner does not intentionally uh, do anything wrong, or even unintentionally, yet if it happens, the ox still dies, there's a cost involved. Now, if I'm living in ancient Israel, and I know this is our law, I'm going to be even more careful with my ox, not just because I care about my neighbor, but because I care about myself. In other words, even self-interest is taken into account that even if I don't love my neighbor as I ought to, and even if I don't necessarily know that my ox would do this, yet I'm going to be even more careful because I recognize there's a built-in economic loss or penalty involved. So already there's a difference. And friends, don't just think about the law on the surface. Think about what this law or these two laws applied to an entire civilization over periods of decades and centuries does to the cultural ethos. What does it do to moral reasoning? And I don't see any way how you're not going to get a lower value of human life in the Babylonian Mesopotamian culture than you would in Israel, where even such a case says the animal dies. And notice, the animal is ceremonially unclean, and so you can't even recover anything from the dead animal. It shall not be eaten. So there is economic loss built in. It's honoring the value of human life over property, over an animal, and there's a built-in economic loss where in Hammurabi there is nothing of the kind. Let's look at the next law in the Code of Hammurabi. Law 251. If a man's ox is known to gore and his city told him and he does not cut its horns and control his ox and this ox gores a man to death, What's the penalty? He shall pay a half mina of 
silver. Look at the parallel passage in verse 29 in Exodus. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Notice the difference. In the economy under Hammurabi, in this pagan culture, if the owner was negligent, so what we would call negligent homicide, the owner didn't go out and beat him with a hammer for no reason, no, but he knew his ox was dangerous, it had killed people in the past, he knew there's a very good chance it's going to do it again, and he didn't take steps to prevent it, and it kills someone, under this pagan culture, you pay a fine. There is a financial value attached to the taking of a human life. Notice that. But in Israel, the only thing that is equal to a human life is a human life itself. And so what we see in verse 29 is there is the death penalty. Now again, I'm not saying that this doesn't sound harsh. I'm not saying we should make this the law of America. If Christians got in charge, they'd be implementing Exodus 21-29. I know some non-believers are, are scared about that. I, I understand their concern. But here's the point, friends. If, if not legally, but morally, remember the two questions, how much is a human life worth? How do you arrive at that answer? In terms of our most deeply held beliefs, our theology, our philosophy, our view of life, our worldview, if human life is so valuable that if I in, it, unintentionally, I, I could have known that this was going to kill somebody and I do it anyway, if I were to forfeit my own life, if that's my moral reasoning, am I going to make the same decisions? As if I'm in, in Mesopotamia under Hammurabi and I know that the worst thing that'll possibly happen if this person gets killed and I could have prevented it and I knew there was a good chance they would die is I'm going to get a fine. What's the difference going to be in that culture? Friends, go back to the Ford Motor Company example. As they were weighing this out, don't think for a moment that their ultimate beliefs, their values, their theology, their philosophy was not influencing their decision-making. It was. In their minds, they're, they're not going to forfeit anything other than money. That's it. In their mind, they, they, it's only about money and what is going to work out for us best. Imagine this, hypothetically. Imagine you're back in the 1970s working for the Ford Motor Company, and, and the, the company is thinking about not repairing the Ford Pinto and allowing all these people to burn to death and die horribly. And when, just before they do it, a new law is passed in, in the United States or in the particular state, uh, Michigan, I suppose, where Ford might have been at the time. And the new law was, if you make a car that you know is going to kill somebody, you will be put to death. Do you think they would have made the decision that they did? Not a chance in the world. It is only because they valued human beings less that they made the decision that they did. And as you see, friends, this is no new thing. This was happening in ancient in the ancient Near East. It has been a perennial historical problem, which means it is deeper than just politics. It is deeper than just legal matters. It goes down deep into human nature. Let's look at the last of the three codes of Hammurabi. Number 252, if it is a man's slave, he shall pay a mina of silver. This is the closest thing or most similar those laws get to what we see here in verse 42. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So again, it's acknowledged that the servant, and again, we are not to read the American North Atlantic slave trade onto biblical texts regarding slavery or servitude. I won't belabor the point. I've talked about it numerous times in, in times past, but suffice it to say the situation in the ancient Near East regarding slavery and servitude was different than it was in uh, the Americas. Furthermore, slavery in ancient Israel was different 
than it was in its surrounding neighbors. So I won't go beyond that. However, what they're acknowledging is that the, the slave or the servant has, in, in whatever way they've got there, uh, selling themselves into slavery perhaps, which was very common, a way out of debt. They owed the master and therefore the payment goes to the master. They are similar in that regard. And actually that's kind of the, the funny thing. It's the similarity that's interesting. Whereas the Code of Hammurabi clearly doesn't highlight or value human beings in the first two instances as much as the Bible, not even close. Yet when it comes to property and money, that's where they start um, to, to raise the bar. And that's one of the things you'll notice when you read through the Code of Hammurabi more generally. They have harsher penalties for the stealing or destruction of property than they do for, for ruining human life for killing human beings. That is one thing very, very different. They valued things and stuff more than people. Well, gosh, doesn't that sound an awful lot like that memo from the Ford Motor Company in the 1970s? They valued money and stuff more than people. So what I hoped I've just shown you is that this problem is perennial. This is a problem that is not just on the surface. It is actually a problem that goes deep down into human nature. And so it's a problem not that we just encountered in the 1970s. It is not just a problem that was encountered in the ancient Near East. It is a problem that we are always potentially facing. Always. Now, why is that? Why is there this perennial problem to value money and things and stuff more than human life? Where does this come from? Here's where it comes from, friends. This is the, what the Bible teaches. The rejection of God always leads to the devaluing of man. Let me say that again. Write it down. The rejection of God always leads to the devaluing of man. One of the things that concerns me most, and we really have not yet to seen it in America today, friends, but we could. And that is many people believe that as we're turning our backs on God, as we're rejecting God, as we're trying to get God out of more and more places, God out of the courtroom, God out of politics, God out of business, God out of public schools, God out of education, God out of uh, entertainment or business or whatever it is, People think that you can do that and there's no social cost. There's no anthropological cost. There's no political or legal cost. But friends, that couldn't be further from the truth. What we see all throughout human history and what God is doing here in Israel is that the rejection of God always leads to the devaluing of human life. And so what God is doing here in ancient Israel, as Israel is being conformed to the image of God, Remember, Israel as a nation is meant to be a light to the nations. That's their job. That's their calling. They are to show the pagan world what it would be like to live under God. And so as, as they, as Israel is being drawn to God and they're being conformed to his image, you see the valuing of human life going up. And by showing you that coat of armor, you're seeing where it starts off. Where is that base level that they're working with in human culture? And you're seeing how Christianity, Judaism, how the Bible lifts up the worth and dignity of human beings. So friends, we cannot reject God while, all, while not simultaneously also devaluing human life. And it is happening in our culture today. Now, I should highlight again, what does the role of the legal code play? Because for some people, they think, okay, well, if we just get the right laws in, such as, say, Exodus 21, 28 through 32, or perhaps some modified derivative of it. If we just get these laws in place, then everything will be fine. But friends, the Bible clearly says that's not the case because Israel itself, who is given the law, is constantly being more conformed to the world than it is to the law of God, which tells us what? It's not a problem with the law of God. Somebody could suppose that. Well, maybe there's something wrong with the law. Paul picks up on this kind of thinking in both Romans and Galatians. He said, is there a problem with the law? Is the law bad? He says, no, the, the law is good, but the law is limited. The law can never deal with the ultimate problem. 
All the law can do in the external legislative sense, all it can do is two things. Number one, identify what temporal evil looks like. Identify what temporal evil looks like. And number two, limit temporal evil. It can do those two things. It can point out what temporal evil is and it can limit it. Okay, but notice the qualifier, temporal. It is not a deep lasting change. It's not a deep lasting solution because ultimately there seems to be in every culture a drift, a drift away from the image of God to where society begins to devalue people more and more and more. When it is not convenient, we devalue. Now again, I want to point this out because somebody out there might be saying, that's not true, Pastor Mike. As a matter of fact, I even think it's the opposite. We're valuing uh, women more, we're valuing minorities more, and isn't that proof that your thesis is wrong? Now friends, if you said that, you have a point, which is the truth that I'm saying that rejecting God always leads to the devaluing of human life is not to be simplistically and uniformly applied across across society or culture. I'm not saying that all human life will equally be devalued at the same time. As a matter of fact, I'd say that's normally not the case. Uh, Nazi Germany would be an example of this. Uh, while they were simultaneously elevating uh, people of, of the German group at that time, uh, Aryan in particular, uh, they were lowering the value of others. So this idea, or in uh, Hammurabi, if you're a male, you were lifted up higher than a female. If you were rich and a landowner, you were lifted up over those who were poor and did not own land. So don't hear me say that the only proof of America rejecting God is if every single kind of person is being devalued. Because I would I would verify the point that in certain cases, perhaps women and minorities, their, their value has gone up in society. I don't necessarily disagree with that, and that's no problem for my thesis whatsoever. However, all I need to point out is the millions the millions of unborn babies who are aborted in the womb every single day, all year long, by Americans. And I can point out, we have devalued human life there. Why? Because some mode of cost-benefit analysis has been applied in which human life is simply not worth as much as something else. Uh, perhaps it's it's just people's desire for free sexual expression, but that comes with a cost. But you don't want to pay the cost of going through nine and a half months of bearing a child of somebody you, you didn't want to be with. And, and then it's going to change your body and it's going to affect your, your job and where your money goes and your career and whether you're going to go to school and all this. So you figure there's a cost-benefit analysis. By the way, this is men involved as, as well as women. It, it can go either way or both ways in terms of where the pressure is coming from. I've, I've seen it in both instances and a cost benefit analysis is applied and the decision is made to abort millions of the unborn. As a matter of fact, you might even say that is some of the most debauched, depraved devaluing of human life possible. Just as we can acknowledge that perhaps a, a man being killed out in the field just doesn't seem a, as, as wrong as a man being killed in his own home because there's a, a, a sanctuary, the man is in a sanctuary, how much more than an unborn baby in its mother's womb being killed in the one place it ought to be the most safe. How treacherous, vile, and despicable is that? And yet this culture is perpetuating it, a devaluing of human life. So friends, make no mistake, as we reject God, devaluing of human life comes. And this was coming for a long time in the United States of America, leading up to Roe v. Wade. There was more and more pressure, more and more people desiring to do that. And that is ultimately the problem. While Christians could take a cue from Exodus 21, 28 through 32 and say, hey, let's get laws that expose evil and try to limit it. But at the same time, we also acknowledge the problem is much deeper. And if people keep on rejecting God and no difference with regard to God is made, there will always be a devaluing of human life. And if it doesn't come up here, it will come up somewhere else. So what is the cure then? If the law can only expose and perhaps restrain limited in a limited fashion temporal evil, what's the answer? How, how can we get human beings 
across the spectrum, old and young, rich and poor, black and white, male and female. How can we raise the value of all people? And the biblical answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the good news. Well, wait a minute. What does that have to do with human rights? What does the gospel have to do with laws and culture and justice and human dignity? What does that have to do with it? Friends, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ has everything to do with every spot and square inch of life on this green earth. Deliverance from the debasement of man only comes through faith in the one who was debased for us. Deliverance from the debasement of man only comes through the one, capital O, the one who was debased for us. Jesus is the servant of all who was sold for the 30 shekels of silver, the very 30 shekels of silver, friends, mentioned in verse 32. Look again, friends. I don't know that you saw this connection to our Lord and to his gospel. Verse 32, if the ox scores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. What was it that Judas betrayed Jesus for when he offered to betray Jesus to the religious leaders? And he said, what will you give me? What is his life worth? What was the response? 30 shekels of silver, which was the price of the slave. This is the very text, the very passage being referenced there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. So it is Jesus, the one sold, willingly sold as a slave, 30 shekels of silver that releases us that enables us to know God, to glorify God, to be forgiven of our sins of devaluing other human beings, and to allow God to renew his image in us so that we might not only value the Lord our God rightly, but all human beings who are made in his image. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel can do what the law pointed to, but could never accomplish. For the gospel deals with the human heart. And make no mistake, friends, when we see all these public policy problems, when we see culture problems, though certainly there's political engagement and there's legal engagement and all that, the problem is deeper. Moral reasoning, valuing begins in the heart, and only the gospel can save people from the devaluing of human life. So what are three ways we can respond this morning to this message of the gospel? And I would suggest three ways. Number one, following Jesus means confessing our sin and tendency to devalue others. Let me say that again. Number one, following Jesus means confessing our sin and tendency to devalue others. Friends, if you're out there today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably know that you have not valued human beings at all times in all ways equally as yourself. That many times, if not most of the time throughout the course of your life, you have lived out for yourself. I'm number one. If this cost-benefit analysis works in my favor, then I'll employ it. And if it's not, and if it hurts you in some way, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, whatever, then tough bananas, I'm number one. Friends, if that is you, confess that you are lost in your sin and selfishness. Confess that you are a slave to sin, that there is no way you can truly live a selfless life but by believing in the one who selflessly gave himself for you. Friends, if you are a believer out there, of course, we've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been washed, we've been renewed, we've been born again. And yet... We must be careful not to be overly triumphalistic as though we've been perfected in the presence of God in heaven. For here we are still in this world and in this body in which we fight sin. The New Testament teaches that though we are born again and God no longer judges us according to our sin, yet sin, the sin nature, is still present in us. So Christians are given no such permission to wake up each day and say, I'm perfect. And the way I treat everybody is right. We must 
humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, if I have devalued people intentionally or even such as in our text this morning, unintentionally. Maybe I was talking about somebody in church and uh, and I, I wasn't necessarily trying to ruin their reputation, but I was just talking, bad-mouthing them anyway. And the next thing you know, you, you've caused a church split. You've caused division. Somebody has left the church. This has happened many times because somebody either intentionally or even unintentionally was doing something that was not right. It was not valuing other human beings the way they were meant to do. And so that's step one for us. Confess that. Lord, I haven't always treated people with the dignity and worth that you give human beings made in your image. Perhaps for many of us, this is a real challenge when it comes to our enemies. Who are your enemies? Maybe there's family members or distant family members or somebody that has made themselves an enemy towards you. And it's hard. It's very difficult not to devalue enemies. Maybe it's political enemies. They're on the opposite end of the political spectrum and they're arguing for public policies that you find abhorrent and you've even got Bible verses to prove it. And yet it is easy it is easy to devalue these people as no longer having human dignity and worth. It is one of the great tragedies of political discourse today. It is not that we can't argue and reason with one another and that we ought to declare what is true and what is right and we ought to decry what is false and what is harmful to people. And yet we must at the same time afford even our opponents and our enemies the dignity and worth that Jesus places upon human beings. Number two, following Jesus means loving our neighbors so that even unintentional actions cause no harm. Loving Jesus means making sure even our unintentional actions cause no harm. Well, what kinds of things then? Well, I think on the surface, probably you've already picked up on this quite easily. Uh, none of us have, uh, I'm going to guess, have an ox in our backyard, but many of us have dogs. And again, I love dogs. Dogs are great pets. There's so many. But again, can you be a negligent dog owner? We've had too many stories of somebody who had, the, had to have the biggest, strongest dog with the most powerful jaws. And then for some reason, inexplicable reason, they did not put him in a cage. They had a rotten wooden fence that's hanging over. I used to walk by one like this where anybody, anybody, any little dog could even knock over much less this, you know, giant pit bull terrier or whatever it is. And it can get through. And a Christian can't do that. You can't go, oh, I'm going to have a dog that can do serious damage and I'm going to do nothing. Or if you have a dog at the dog park and your dog literally always attacks other dogs and rips open their skin, don't be that guy or that woman who keeps bringing your dog back. Either go somewhere else, put a muzzle, do something. We can't do that. And there's so many people I'm seeing today who have no regard to other people. They don't care what's going on. They're going to do whatever they want to do and whatever damage happens to anybody else, well, that's just their problem. Another way is how we drive our cars, friends. It is not responsible. This would be a violation of the principle here to drive your car recklessly, to drive 95 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour and say to yourself, well, there's no Bible verse that says I can't drive 95. Well, actually there is. If you are endangering other people, even if you do not intend to do it, you are violating the spirit and principle of God's law. We are not to do anything that jeopardizes other people. So how we drive our cars, that we're following traffic laws. Again, I'm not talking being legalistic where, oh, you went 56 instead of 55 for two seconds. No, but I'm saying that we're not recklessly driving crazy and endangering people's lives. I read every single week stories of people who are dying, including a highway that I often use when I commute or take a highway, just head-on collisions, and many of them were easily preventable. If people didn't drive 90 miles an hour around a blind 35-mile-an-hour corner, Christians should not do things like that. And so I think one of the things you're hopefully seeing, Christians cannot be lazy thinkers. Whenever we're going to do something, whether it's behind the wheel of a car, walk, picking a dog, walking our dog, going to the boardroom, and you're making decisions on how your products are going to affect other people's lives, mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever the case might be, we have more thinking than the world to do. They'll do less because their belief in God and man does not go as deep. 
But to a believer, we must constantly reflect, hey, this might sell, this might make a lot of money, we'll be really popular, everyone will like us, but look, if we're causing damage, we can't do it. I know I feel that way as a teacher of the Bible. I know there's lots of things I could say that would get more people. That, that, oh, to entertain people, just to give them whatever they want. If there's biblical truths that are unpopular, oh, we'll change them. But I can't do that. That would be to cause irreparable harm. I'd be ruining people's lives. I can't do that. The weight of teaching the word of God has never left me. It sits on me heavy in, in a good way, but it's heavy. It is weighty. I have to make sure I am not misleading people with the word of God. The pulpit is not a place for the pastor to get up and espouse whatever in the world is his opinion on any number of things. It is a place where God's word is taught as God's word, not where man's opinion is taught as God's word. And so we must all think deeply and responsibly about how our actions, both intentionally and unintentionally, may cause harm to others. And lastly, number three. Following Jesus means loving our neighbor by sharing the gospel. Following Jesus means loving our neighbor by sharing the gospel. Again, I know there's a lot of people out there, including Christians, who think teaching the Bible and getting the gospel out is, is a waste of time. Uh, look at what's going on in society. Uh, we're, we're just going to have to fight it, you know, fight fire with fire and earthly carnal powers with carnal powers. Friends, while I already acknowledge there, there is a, a legal role, just like we saw here, and yet I've also highlighted that the problem is ultimately deeper than any law, even including the Mosaic law, could deal with. The gospel is what converts a sinner's heart so that they love God and they will love their fellow human being. That is what Jesus has called us to do. And people cannot love their neighbor as themselves unless they love God in whose image they are made. And so it is my prayer this morning that we would be so fully formed by the word of God that not only will we always think deeply and responsibly and biblically about all of our actions in the world so that no harm is done to anyone, whether friends or enemies, but more than that, we will love our neighbors as ourselves. We will do good to those around us. We will promote the kingdom of God. And so that people can see that, wow, those people, that church, they elevate the dignity and worth of humans far above any of their pagan neighbors. And when they say, why? Why do you value humans so much? We don't just say, oh, well, I'm a I'm just a great guy. We say, I know a great Savior who has saved me from my sin and gave me a vision of human dignity and worth that comes from God himself. So friends, let us love our neighbors. Let us love our enemies. Let us love those people. Let us do good for them. And let us certainly make sure that we do our very best to cause no harm to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you so much that your word is a timely word. Lord, I believe we're living in a time when human beings are being devalued in various ways, and certainly as we heard, the lives of the unborn. And that is because people have rejected you first and foremost, Lord. And so I would pray for your spirit to be poured out on the United States of America. I pray you would so radically convert the hearts of sinners by the gospel of Jesus that they would love God and they would love life. And even though it will indeed cost them much to have children that they didn't plan on, to bring children into this world and to raise them and clothe them, it will cost them so much more than they even realize. And yet it is good and right and beautiful to do so and brings honor to your name. Lord, help us to become a culture that leads the way. We, America, who are leading the world in the perversity of the aborting of children, let us, Lord, be forgiven. Give us grace. Let us turn and be a culture and a light to the world that seeks on rescuing the lives of the unborn, helping people to promote the value of human life in society. Lord, use us as your instruments to make what difference we can for this time and place before Jesus returns. 
Lord, we pray you would cause us to think deeply about all the things that we're doing, even the way we engage in business and make decisions on products and services that we as Christians always have more questions to ask, not less. It is more work to be a Christian, not less. Lord, how can we make sure you are glorified? And the dignity and worth of human beings is elevated to its proper place. Lord, help us to practice this this week, whether with our, our pets driving our cars, decisions in the boardroom. Let us reflect the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I thank you so much for joining us for the, to this uh, today's service. Blah, can't speak right now. But if this message was a blessing to you, I just want to encourage you, like our post, comment on it, share it, copy and paste the link, send it to a friend. Uh, use it as a, a way to dialogue, too. That's one thing I would encourage. If you send it to a friend or family member, say, hey, I'd like to send this to you. And I'm not saying you'll agree with all of it necessarily. Maybe you're not a Christian. But hey, if you listen to it, I'd be happy to, to talk about this with you and to address some of those points. So I want to encourage you, use these messages, use these opportunities to create dialogue with other people. I think that's important. It isn't always the pastor they need to talk to. Many times you can use what the pastor said and taught in order for you to start a conversation you can have with somebody else. I believe God wants to use each and every one of you. So just that's a particular way you might be able to do that. Also, for those who would like to continue this morning's worship with tithes and offerings, with giving to the Lord, there are two ways that you can do that. Uh, the first way is you can go on to our church website, which is imagechurchoc.com. And up at the top, there's a giving tab, and you can click there, and you're able to give with either a credit or debit card. If you'd like to continue to give to the Lord and support the ministry uh, by mailing in a check or money order, you're able to do that to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry, 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 92694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Uh, just a few announcements. Again, we have our Wednesday night midweek Bible study. We're currently going through 2 Corinthians. It's an incredible book. If you've missed any of the last few weeks, I would encourage you sometime, go back and listen to those. Uh, take notes. It's, it's such an, an amazing book in so many ways. We'll be continuing that this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so I encourage you to join us for that. Also, mark your calendars. Just two weeks from today, we'll have another in-person worship service. That'll be March 21st. So plan on joining us in San Juan Capistrano, March 21st, two weeks from today. Also mark your calendars for two weeks after that, which will be Easter Sunday. We will be gathering in person Eastern Sunday to worship and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So go ahead and write those on your calendar. Uh, make sure to join us there. We would all love to have you if you're able to be there. Again, if you have any prayer requests or Bible questions, you can send those to information at imagechurchoc.com. So you can email us at information at imagechurchoc.com. Again, friends, thank you all so much for joining with me today. I encourage you to reflect over what you've heard today. I know it can just kind of go totally right over you and you're kind of overwhelmed with the information, but either re-listen to it, look at your notes, begin to reflect on any of those key points, those key takeaways that the Lord, the Holy Spirit placed on your heart. And I would just encourage you to live out the ethic of the kingdom of God. Think deeply about it, how your actions, both intentionally and unintentionally, have an impact on how people perceive God and the value of our fellow human beings. Let me close with this prayer of blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you all. Thank you so much. And I look forward to joining with you all again real soon.